www.ncpe.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself or prove to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. I welcome you this hour to the Bible line. If you are a first time listener for the next hour, we'll be taking people's questions as they've been studying God's word, maybe a particular issue that they're seeking uh, understanding or application on, or maybe there's a challenge in your personal life or ministry that you would like some biblical help. Well, if we can be of service to you by God's grace, we'll do the best we can with his help. All you need to do again is pick up the phone locally. It's 843-525-1859 for our internet users. If you want to use our toll free number, you can. And that number is 877. The call letters WAGP 980. A high percentage of people email us here directly into the studio. Uh, they want to remain totally anonymous, and you can do so if you wish. And the email address here that will pop up on the screen in front of us is TBL. That stands for the Bible line, TBL at net. And if you do call, uh, we give preference to live callers. You can go on the air, or you can simply dictate your question however you're most comfortable to do it. Uh, this is a great week. It's uh, We celebrate our our nation's birthday, and uh, it's also an opportunity uh, for Community Bible Church to present a great concert this coming Sunday evening, barbecue and concert. Rick, tell us a little bit about that. Maybe even have a spot that you'll play before we're done here. Indeed, Pastor. We've got a a wonderful afternoon scheduled for Sunday, beginning at 5.30. A barbecue, as you mentioned, there's going to be slow-cooked barbecue chicken, all the sides, and uh, all of the folks at Community Bible Church are bringing some desserts to share with the general public and themselves. And then at 7 o'clock, um, we're moving into the uh, comfort of the auditorium, and we'll be blessed with the sounds of Denver and the Mile High Orchestra. If you've not heard Denver and the Mile High Orchestra before, they're uh, kind of a big band uh, swing-type sound, and some people have uh, said Denver actually sounds a little bit like Michael Buble. So that helps. Uh, that, that should be a lot of fun. All right, good. Well, let's go ahead and we'll get started this morning. All right, we've got a a listener from out of state that would like to know two things. First of all, he says, what confession are you? And uh, are you a Baptist uh, or something else? And then secondly, he admits I'm a Christian and have uh, fallen in sin outside of marriage, not beyond hugging and kissing, he says, uh, but he does feel bad about it, loves the Lord and wants to be clean and is seeking your help and advice. All right, those are great questions. Um, you know, Baptists, uh, it, it means a lot of things today because there are about 250 Baptist denominations. Some are more faithful to the Word of God than others. You know, historically, a Baptist was a, a believer of the book, as they would often summarize uh, the essence of what they stood for. There are certainly Baptist distinctives, though not certainly true across the boards. Uh, Baptists often hold to the uh, biblical infallibility of the Bible, though cooperative Baptists that are now sweeping South Carolina in different parts of the country do not. 
And so if you go to a church where they are either coal aligned or they give money to cooperative Baptists, and we have a few churches like that, even in Beaufort and some on the other side of the river, then you know you are supporting a church that is less than faithful historically to Baptist doctrines. I am actually ordained as a, a, I was licensed as a conservative Baptist and ordained as a Southern Baptist, uh, though I pastor a non-denominational church. And so that's uh, the challenge for people. What does it mean, non-denominational? Well, in our day, it can mean just about anything from uh, rolling on the floor and charming snakes and passing out to uh, solid Bible teaching. I hope, of course, we fall uh, fall on the latter end. Uh, In either case, uh, I do, you know, ascribe to some distinctives that would set me apart. Uh, Like a Baptist, I would historically believe in eternal security, like a Southern Baptist. Uh, You go into Eastern Europe, for instance, and for the most part, the Baptists are Arminian. They are primarily the Bible-believing Christians, but many of them believe and have been taught uh, during the 70 years when there was no uh, seminaries or really even books to read and study. Uh, They were taught that you could lose your salvation. And so I think, by God's grace, we're having an impact in Eastern Europe and educating people, God's men and pastors, that that's really not true. And we put together, you know, a number of passages that they have been taught that would affirm you can lose your salvation. And when you look at them carefully in the context, they realize, hey, that's not the case. The best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. So when you have about 150 or so passages that affirm eternal security uh, and maybe 10 that seem to deny it, you always interpret what is unclear in light of what is clear. We also at Community Bible Church practice post-conversion baptism. We would affirm, of course, all the historical fundamental doctrines of the faith, the virgin birth, the doctrine of the Trinity, the substitutionary atonement of Christ, his physical bodily resurrection from the dead, his physical bodily return from heaven. I am premillennial in my theology. I believe that Jesus will come before he reigns on the earth and that the promises he made to Israel are true and that God will keep those promises, that God is not done with the Jewish people, that replacement theology that the church has replaced Israel is really not accurate and faithful to uh, a consistent way in which to interpret the Bible. Uh, The New Testament writers gave us a vehicle in which how to interpret the Bible. uh, And it's what we would call a historical, literal, grammatical interpretation. Uh, So um, as I study the New Testament writers and I see them interacting with Old Testament passages and even within the Old Testament itself, looking back like right now we're in uh, one of the most amazing passages in all the Bible, Daniel 9, and we're coming a week from Sunday to the 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel. And so Daniel is interacting with the prophet Jeremiah and how does he interact with him with a historical, literal, grammatical Uh, hermeneutic or way to which interpret the scripture. So um, I am a conservative Bible believing pastor. I I don't think that you need to think about what I believe so much as what God says. And so our authority is sola scriptura, scripture alone. And if a pastor can't defend what he believes from the word of God, then he should just be quiet. Our admonition as Christian pastors is to preach the word 
not our own ideas or denominational preferences or local church preferences. Like Baptists, we are autonomous, so we believe in the autonomy of the local church, that there's not a structure above the local church that tells it what to do. But like Baptists, too, we cooperate with other Bible-believing Christians. Uh, Historically, Baptists tend to do that with other Baptists. Uh, I don't obviously think that Baptists are the only Bible-believing Christians, so we cooperate with any evangelical, and I don't define that term loosely but strictly because a lot of people wear the label evangelical and they mean a dozen things by it. Uh, So I do cooperate with other Bible-believing evangelicals, and for the sake of missions, you know, we support uh, mission agencies that are committed to church planning and the preaching of the gospel. Community Bible Church now uh, cooperates uh, with some 300 missionaries around the world that we support monthly through our tithes and offerings. In Eastern Europe, we support, I think, 18 Baptist pastors now because they represent evangelical Christians. But about 90% of the missionaries in the world that leave America are not associated with a particular denomination. Uh, Wycliffe Bible Translators, Sudan Interior Mission, whatever it might be, Pioneer Ministries, Arab World Missions, uh, China Inland Mission. Some of those are old names that have put a new face on themselves, but still those historically represent uh, mission agencies that are not associated with a particular denomination. Uh, So since 90% of the missionaries in the world fall into that category, that's where we give a lot of our monies Uh, to credible mission agencies that are faithful to the Word of God and trying to reach people for Christ and to build them in their faith. Anyway, so that's kind of the upshot of it. To respond to the second half of your question, you have been engaged in some sexual impurity, kissing potentially another man's wife or another man's wife. You don't specify, but you're married and you were involved in kissing and hugging another woman to whom you were not married. And you feel a lot of shame. And you should, of course, but you need to also experience God's forgiveness. And the scripture says that a broken and contrite heart, God will not despise. It says the one who covers his sin will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes his sin, God is going to show him kessed, uh, his loving kindness, his mercy. It's, a, it's kind of a hyphenated word, maybe in English, we'd say grace slash mercy, the grace and mercy of God. It's hard to interpret with any single English word, but God wants to show his loving kindness to his people. Uh, I believe that this question actually came from a pastor. And so I think that pastor needs to go and he needs to, uh, one, tell his wife. And I think you need to deal with the leadership in your church, maybe step down for a period of time. Uh, until you really get this area of your life in order because there's some things that fed it, that precipitated it. You just didn't start hugging and kissing a woman one day that you walked up to. Uh, You have fed your heart in sensuality, and that is what has opened you up. And, of course, if Satan can discredit you as a pastor, he's won a huge victory because it does tremendous damage to the local assembly and to the local church. So many times people who are involved in full-time ministry, they have a target on their back, as Dr. Howard Hendricks would tell us as young seminarians, because if he can pull us down, he's done far much more damage. So more than likely, as a pastor, you've compromised your viewing habits, your reading habits, your music habits, you know, the scripture says, watch over your heart with all diligence because uh, out of it flow the issues of life. 
And so you've not guarded your heart, and because you've compromised there, that's what's opened you to the possibility to to even compromise physically. So you need to come clean with your wife. If you kind of hide this, you're not going to experience freedom, and you need to come uh, clean with the leadership of the church, step out for a period of time. I don't know how long that is, but I think hopefully you have some wise people that are working with you. So I hope that helps. Let's go to the next question. I think we have someone who's been waiting patiently. We do indeed. Thanks for holding, caller. You are on the air. Good morning. Good morning, Rick. Good morning, Pastor. Good morning. How can we help today? This is this is kind of a, a statement that I'd like a response to. Okay. I, I've been thinking about this a lot. We have someone running for president. I think I think this is an historical first that is under investigation by the FBI. Number one, I don't I don't understand why that's even allowed to happen in this country. But I'm astounded and a little bit ashamed of my fellow countrymen that they have turned against God so much. Um, I'm, I, I'm thinking to myself that 60 million babies. That, you know, the souls of them are crying out, and I, I really firmly in my heart believe that God is leaving us to our own devices. Uh, look, at, look at the two people we have running for the highest office for the most powerful country in the world, and it's scary. And I, it, it just seems like in just reading Scripture where you keep turning your back on God, and he'll turn his back on you. And we've turned our back on Israel, and I... I I get the feeling that God's hand of blessing is is slowly coming off of us. I think we were probably the most blessed nation in the world for what we've accomplished in 242 years, and it just seems like we're sliding down a slippery slope. And I'd just like your comments on that. Well, it is very sad, and uh, it is, I suppose, unprecedented, uh, some of the choices that we have right now as Christians. You know, Hillary Clinton is being investigated, as you mentioned, by the FBI. Of course, in our country, we're innocent until proven guilty. But it will be interesting to see exactly how she comes out on this. And hopefully um, she will not be above the law that if indeed she is guilty, that the law will be enforced to its fullest extent. It certainly was for General Petraeus, whom a lot of pundits uh, would say that he was guilty of far less than she is, but I don't know. I don't know the facts of the case, but hopefully we still have some people in the FBI with integrity, and hopefully our Attorney General will do what she says she will now that she was, quote-unquote, caught, I suppose, meeting with uh, President Clinton. Um, but you know, it's sad. Let's just say for the sake of argument, Hillary Clinton is cleared. I certainly could not vote for, you know, to listen to her speech that she gave in front of Planned Parenthood advocating the murder of little babies. You know, when her husband had the chance to, on three occasions, veto partial birth of abortion, he didn't. And he, uh, he was in favor of it. And no doubt Hillary was as well because she said she was. And, you know, that's just a horror. It's an absolute horror. Uh, and, of course, you know, Donald Trump just some years back affirmed the same position. And, again, I just don't think most Americans are, are thinking and even realize what is going on. You know, legally, a woman can murder her baby up until the day the baby is born for health reasons or which can include 
of a woman's financial health or mental health, all kinds of things, or the life of the mother, you know, um, which makes up very, very, very few abortions uh, in our nation. Uh, but it is sad to think that a baby can be delivered feet first and before the head is delivered to have the brains sucked out and the skull crushed and to put a dead baby on the uh, table. But they had to go to that methodology because there were so many late-term abortions where the babies were being born alive. And they had a lot of nurses who were in a quandary who were participating in these abortions. And a baby comes and their motherly heart screams and says, oh, what's going on? You know, this baby's alive. And you had, of course, the famous case in Boston where the physician literally strangled the baby to death. Uh, But in most... uh, abortions, saline abortions, as they were called, where they would inject a saline solution into the womb of the mother and a baby was born, basically burned to death. I mean, how pathetic, how sad. Uh, You know, we talk about Nazi Germany and 6 million Jews who were exterminated. We have 60 million babies that we've exterminated. And because we were, quote unquote, the moral leaders of the world, Now there are some 300 million babies across the world because they followed the example of the United States. So I certainly could not vote for Hillary Clinton. I I certainly hope Trump has uh, genuinely changed his view. But uh, without going into too much detail, let me just say that let's just say we had a born again Christian who is as straight as an arrow uh, on the moral social issues. Uh, I thought that you know, in many ways, Ted Cruz fit that bill. I don't think he's a super mature believer, but he's in no doubt in my mind, a born again Christian. And uh, otherwise I would not have let him speak in my church. But a lot of Christians in America are not mature, but he's mature enough to take a stance on a lot of critical issues that are important to me. But let's just say for the sake of argument, it was January, two thousand. 17 and he was the president of the United States, I think it would change very little in America because the American people fundamentally as a nation has to turn back to God. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord's, but sin is a reproach to any people. And as a nation, we are living in rebellion against God almighty and God will not bless that. And we are, we're headed for a precipice that we're going to fall off of. And it may not necessarily be a bad thing because God often just read the book of Judges uses heartache where the people then scream out to God in repentance. And if it's genuine repentance, it can bring real change. And that's what I hope and pray for our nation. But I recognize, though, you know, people are praying for revival. It starts with the body of Christ. And really, revival is a term. It's like the term awakening. Uh, But in scripture, the term revival is used in reference to God's people. We often use it to describe an unbelieving world, but it's better use the word awakening to describe what can happen in the hearts of unbelievers. And so we need a revival in the church and awakening amongst lost people to turn this country around. Very good. 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7980. And uh, you can also email us at tbl at net. All right, we've got another live caller standing by. Let's go to them. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Hello. Yeah, you're there. Go ahead. Oh, just give us a second. Uh, all right, go ahead. Speak okay. up. 
Um, yes, in reference to some of the things that you were just saying a minute ago, and um, you kind of hit on some of the stuff that I wanted to say, because, I, because I'm thinking with President Obama, with Hillary, and all these people that's going for president, as much as we take time out to criticize, the Bible says to pray for them. And if the Christian were praying like they should have, God would have done what he needed to do. But we sit around and we complain that Obama isn't doing this, Hillary is this one, Donald Trump is this one. And I hear so much complaining, but the Bible said, let's pray for those people who are in leadership. And if the Christian would get on their knees and begin to pray and not criticize and leave it up to God to do what he wants to do, then he'll work it out. That's what I think. Well, you make a good comment because you're right. I think if uh, the average Christian who complains spent a little more time in their prayer closet, things might be different. Paul says, first of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. And then he qualifies further for kings and all who are in authority in order that we may live a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. And it's interesting how he further qualifies that. It's not just for our own personal pleasure. He said, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. And so he's saying, look, you, you need to pray for our leaders. And of course, when Paul writes this, Nero is in charge, and it's under Emperor Nero that Paul's going to have his head cut off. Uh, But that's not to say that uh, things could have been far worse. Uh, There was uh, a growing peace that they realized in the uh, empire, but it it was a long way away uh, from the first century. So, you know, in the late second, early third century, we, we begin to see... Uh, the Colosseum shut down where Christians are being fed to animals. But Paul's point is, is that we want peace and tranquility. Why? To have freedom to share the gospel. Why? Because God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. With that said, Nero was never converted. And I've prayed for President Obama since day one, but he's an evil man. He's unrepentant. And we have an evil vice president who's unrepentant. And it's very sad. And we have scores of members in the Congress and the House who are uh, who are propagating evil. They are standing for things that God is opposed to, whether it's same sex marriage, whether it's the killing of little babies uh, on and on and on. We are raising our fists in the face of God Almighty and we are inviting and we are experiencing the judgment of God. Paul in Romans 1 sp- speaks not of future wrath, the wrath to come, what we call eschatological wrath, but he speaks about the wrath of God that is being revealed from heaven. That when a nation turns from God, God gives that nation over to sensuality. And if they don't turn, God gives that nation over to homosexuality. And if they don't turn, then God gives that nation over to a depraved, a reprobate, an upside down mind. And it's a sad nation when we call good evil and evil good. And so, you know, a number of the pundits, as you know, uh, after the Orlando attack on uh, CNN and um, 
uh, public TV. Who are they blaming? They're blaming the Christians, and they're speaking against the duplicity of born-again Christians who, you know, say, well, we need to pray for the folks in Orlando, and we're compassionate towards them. Well, we should be compassionate towards them. But what they are doing, you know, what they were doing in that nightclub was an evil thing that God is opposed to. And so, you know, we we live in a day where they people are calling uh, people who stand for good evil. And those who stand for evil, like homosexuality, good. Oh, you're compassionate. You're, you're, a, you're a wonderful person. You're not homophobic. Look, uh, the most compassionate thing we can do is to call adultery sin, to call homosexuality sin, to call drunkenness sin. Because Paul says, do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards shall inherit the kingdom of God. If that's what typifies our lifestyle, then we'll have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. But the president, the judicial branch, uh, the Supreme Court, and the executive branch, and the Congress are affirming what God calls evil. Uh, Paul tells Timothy that laws are to be written against this kind of behavior. He says law, speaking of man's law, which should reflect God's natural or written law on the heart, is not made for a righteous man, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. That's who laws are to be written against. Why? To curb that behavior. But what is the executive branch? What is the judicial branch? What is the Congress of the United States doing? They, the legislative branch, they are writing laws in favor of these behaviors. They are calling good, evil, and evil, good. And that is sad. You know, when we advocate murder through the killing of little babies, when we advocate the transgender lifestyle, you know, which the Pentagon last week came out in favor of, you know, receiving transgender people into the military services. That's just stupid. That's social experimentation in the military force that we have. And we're we're shooting ourselves in the foot. But, you know, to say that kind of thing, it's not politically correct. It's evil. But I'm with you. We are still called to pray for these people. It could be far worse. And um, I'm telling you, unless things change, it's going to get worse. Uh, we are in for some troubled days, and I just, I was in our Graniteville campus on Sunday, and I was talking to a little 12-year-old guy, and I, he definitely knew the Lord, and I said, should Jesus tarry, and you live to be an old man, I said, on the path we are at, you're going to experience a lot of persecution. I said, when you go off to the university in about another six years, I said, right now, 82%, according to Barna, 82% of college students in America have no problem with the homosexual lifestyle. So I said, right now, you represent a minority, and it might even be a smaller minority by the time you get there in six years. I said, what is that going to do? It's it going to mean it's going to mean you're going to be attacked. People are going to scorn you, make fun of you. I said you need to be prepared for this because this is the world that you are growing up in. So anyway, um, so we need to pray. You're right, um, but just uh, but I will say that remember Paul prayed. He prayed for Nero, but Nero cut his head off. 
So it doesn't definitely mean that things are going to turn around. And we know there is coming a generation because the Bible teaches it where there will be no mass revival. Should we pray for mass revival? Yes. But there is coming a generation where there will be no sweeping revival, but evil will take over and it will bring in the return of Christ from heaven. Now, I'm not advocating that you, you, you grease the skids to bring about the return of Christ. It doesn't change my responsibility as a Christian, but I know that day is coming, and we may be reaching that day. Mm, indeed. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line to add a little interest to all of this, um, we just got over the wire information that the FBI has recommended no charges against uh, Hillary Clinton for use of her personal email, although they said she was careless. Uh, there, No prosecutor in his right mind would uh, have sufficient evidence to uh, bring it to trial. So, All right. Whatever that well, means. I, I, I hope, I hope uh, that they are not abusing the justice system. Indeed. Sure hope. All right. So another listener would uh, wonder whether God's people, uh, I'm sorry, a caller would like to know how you remember all the kings and dates and chronology of Daniel. Uh, this listener knows how important all of this is, but gets confused with the chronology overlapping and what is happening when. Do you have any suggestions for people to remember all of this? Well, you know, I, I, when I preach a sermon out of a book like the prophet Daniel, you know, I've been studying it for years and years and years, and I could hold back and just give you some really light fluff and, and not really lay it down, but I'm, I'm putting it down in a way so that the newest Christian is going to get something he's going to benefit from it. But the hungry Christian who wants to go back and listen to the sermon seven or eight times and take, you know, great notes that's what's going to really make it stick for you. So, for instance, knowing when the various uh, prophecies take place in the book of Daniel are important. So I gave people a chart, and it's up there long enough for people to copy. But if you didn't get it, you could go to searchthescriptures.org. And the great thing is, is we got tremendous uh, tech guys, and they put those slides up on there. And all you have to do is hit pause on the computer and you don't have to listen to the audio version. You can see it visually, and you can see that chart. And you can see when the visions come. So the book of Daniel can be divided different ways. Some would take chapter 1 as kind of a historical background to Daniel, then 2 through 7, dealing with the Gentile nations, and then 8 through 12, dealing with Israel. 2 through 7 go from Hebrew to Aramaic. And then when you come to chapter 8 and verse 1, it goes back into Hebrew. So that's one way in which to divide it. Another way is to take 1 through 6 and 7 through 12, 1 through 6 dealing with Daniel and his friends, his three friends that were deported with him under uh, the leadership of King Nebuchadnezzar and those three deportations that take place, and 7 through 12 dealing with Daniel and his people, because the focus of 7 through 12 is largely Israel. Uh, seven, dealing with the Gentile nations, but as it relates to Israel. In either case, um, what is confusing to people and challenging to people is they often think, well, seven through 12 chronologically happens after one through six, when in actuality, seven through 12 can be laid over chapters one through six, and the visions that are the four visions found in 7 through 12 fit in and around the chronology of 1 through 6. When you meet Daniel in the lion's den in chapter 6, he's an old man. He's around 85 years old. 
And so it's important to realize that if that's towards the end of his life, then it makes you think. But the great thing is, is that Daniel is one of the most documented books in the Bible. So as you read all the way through the book of Daniel, there's little chronological notes. And so I tell people, you know, right out in the margin, this date, uh, this is an important date. And, and the great thing is, is that Daniel is one of the most affirmed book in secular history. So when we come to Daniel 9 and we are going to read about a decree to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, uh, we know when that decree is. And we not only know from biblical history because we are given the date of the decree in the book of Nehemiah, but we also know from secular history. Twenty uh, some years ago, I preached the book of Daniel at Community Bible Church without a lot of the uh, sophistication and the aids that we now have that I think will really help Christians to study it with the charts and uh, slides that they can stop and pause and take notes on, which is a tremendous aid. And I know I have a lot of seminary students who are following along with us. So I'm teaching it very, very in-depth. So if you're a new Christian, you're going to get something. If you're an older Christian, you, you're going to have to study it. It's not going to come easy. You know, the Bible talks about searching after God's truth like a man would seek after silver and gold. If you knew there was gold buried in your backyard somewhere, $10 million worth of gold, you'd start digging. You'd have holes all over the place. You'd have metal detectors. You'd be looking for that gold like your life depended on it. Well, listen, that's the way we are to hunger after God's word. But a lot of Christians are just kind of lazy and they don't really want to do that. And they don't want to go back and rewind uh, the tape and watch the message again because they're lazy because they've got too much going on on their Facebook page and their favorite television show. Um, but I've, I've put it there for you if someone really wants to study it and learn it. And Daniel is, of course, critical to understanding the book of Revelation it, it fits hand in glove with the revelation. In fact, I can tell you a lot about a man's uh, doctrine of end times by the way he understands the 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel. All right, good question. Let's go to the next one, Rick, and we'll move on. All righty. We've got a uh, listener who has taken the spiritual gifts inventory three times. Each time, her number one gift is faith. And she's wanting to know how that gift would express itself in tangible terms today. She says her faith in God is really strong. So how would I use this today? Well, one expression and probably one of the most common expressions of the gift of faith is that these people are prayer warriors. God has just put a burden in their heart to pray. Now, we should all pray. But, you know, some people say, well, he or she has the gift of prayer. Well, there's no such gift. There's not a gift of prayer any more than there's a gift of working with youth. Uh, it might be, however, that someone has the gift of teaching and they are burdened to work with youth using the gift of teaching. And a common expression of the gift of faith is they believe God to work through prayer. And very often it's your prayer warriors who have an unusual burden and an intensive burden to pray who have the gift of faith because they believe that God can move and work and change things through prayer. So rather than just talking over uh, problems that our nation or they are experiencing in their own lives or other Christians are experiencing that they are aware of, uh, they talk it over with God. And so that would be one critical thing. But what I would suggest to this person would be to go online and you can uh, go to searchthescriptures.org and you can 
go to the spiritual gifts uh, course that I taught. And one of the sections deals with the various spiritual gifts and how they could function. So I have, you know, like eight examples of the gift of faith and 10 examples of the gift of teaching and so forth. And you could go online and you could uh, study what I've taught there in, in, in depth. And I think that would be useful to you. Let's go to the next question. 843-525-1859. Toll free 877-924-7980. If you have a question on today's Bible line, or you can email us at tbl at net. as has Terry from Mars Hill, North Carolina, who would like to know, what do you think of the freedom in Christ ministry started by Neil Anderson? Well, um, Neil Anderson, I mean, he has the gospel, so, you know, he's a brother in Christ. He's not a heretic or, you know, anything like that. Um, But without a doubt, you know, some of the books that he's written, his initial book was Bondage Breaker. I forgot it came out in the late 70s or so. A little bit controversial. Um, He argues that a Christian is positionally free from the bondage of sin. Uh, We call that justification. That's true. But he would argue in terms of sanctification, since that is an ongoing process, and it is, that while a Christian um, uh, a Christian can be dominated by Satan. So I think he's unbalanced. I don't know how else to say it without being mean. He argues that uh, demonization of a Christian is possible, and I would differ with that. And so he tends to see a demon under every rock, and a lot of people like that. Uh, They like the dramatic, the dramatic cells, Um, people fainting on the floor, fills seats, people having a leg grow, fills, uh, you know, seats. And nobody wants to be sick. Uh, The dramatic of casting out a demon, ah, you know, that, that, that brings crowds. And I think he falls not, you know, to the extreme dramatic, but he falls in that dramatic camp and it sells books. And I just think he's wrong. You know, I I think he's wrong on some of these issues. I don't believe a a Christian can be demonized or demon possessed. Demonized is the good word, better really describing it in the New Testament. A greater is he that is in you than he is in the world. And, And if you remember too, in Matthew chapter 12, when the Jewish people officially reject Jesus as the Messiah, Uh, Jesus makes an interesting statement. Let me just turn there for just a moment here in my Bible. And of course, um, Jesus had performed a a triple miracle and they couldn't deny the miracle. So they denied the source of the miracle. They said, this man casts out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. And knowing their thoughts, he said to them, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. In any city or house divided against itself shall not stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then shall his kingdom stand? And if by Beelzebul cast out, if I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? Consequently, they shall be your judge. But if I cast out demons by the spirit of God, uh, Mark, I think, says the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And so Jesus is saying, look, your assessment is totally wrong. You are committing a sin that is unforgivable. It's called blasphemy of the Holy Spirit in our series of pneumatology on Wednesday nights. We will deal with this in depth. Um, But Jesus makes this statement shortly thereafter. Again, it's in the same 
conversation. It's in the same um, whole dialogue where he, he speaks to the fact that he said, one, he calls them a brood of vipers. You're, you're just like a nest of spiders. Um, and he reminds them that the mouth speaks out of that uh, which fills the heart, that the good man out of his good treasure brings forth what is good, and the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil. And he reminds them that every careless word shall be addressed at the judgment seat of Christ. And they, of course, want a sign. And he says, just an evil and adulterous generation asked for a sign. The only sign you're going to get is the sign of Jonah. And that was a prophetic type that would picture what Yeshua, the Messiah, would do by his death, burial, and resurrection. And then Jesus makes uh, this incredible, incredible statement. And it really typifies Israel. He says, now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go in and live there. And the last state of the man has become worse than the first. That is the way it will be also with this evil generation. So the Lord is really reminding them that um, when you just clean your life up on the outside, which the Pharisees were known for doing, he said, you know, the cup looks clean on the outside, but it's filthy on the inside. He's reminding them that unless there's a real internal change that takes place, that you are in a worse position. And so John the Baptist came calling them to repentance to prepare their hearts for the coming of Messiah. But they didn't really respond to the message. And some of them, all they did was clean up on the outside. And so when the demon comes back, if the house is unoccupied and he's describing the body here as a house, then the demon has position to inhabit it. And of course, the point I'm trying to make is under the new covenant, we are indwelt by the spirit of God. And so John can write in summary form, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And so Satan cannot possess a believer. But Neil Anderson takes that position. And again, I I think he's wrong. That's not to say that a believer can't be oppressed and attacked by the evil one. But there's a difference between oppression and demon possession. Uh, The devil may take a bite out of you and try to get his fangs into you with one of his fiery darts, but he cannot devour you um, in the truest sense in, in that he can come and live inside of you. Now he, he, he prowls about like a, a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And Peter is warning us, but he, he, while he can hurt you, he can't possess you is what I'm trying to say. And the Bible would make a clear distinction. So I, I just think he's a little too dramatic, you know, and, and a lot of people have taken Neil Anderson's, um, theology and they've applied it to, you know, oh, we got to come and we got to anoint our our house with oil because there's demons living in the walls. There's no biblical justification anywhere in the word of God that shows that a demon can live in a wall or in a room or anything like that. Uh, Demons work in persons. And again, they can attack, but they cannot possess and people get almost paranoid, and this becomes an all-consuming kind of thing. I, I think what is beginning to change, however, in America is because we are giving ourselves over to evil, 
that we will see more demon possession, not amongst God's people, but against people who are lost. And there are other parts of the world where they are openly engaged in the demonic realm and you will witness demonic possession. Uh, But that's not amongst the people of God. So I I just don't think he's real balanced. So again, he's a brother in Christ and you're going to meet him in heaven someday, but I, I just don't think he's very balanced. And a lot of people... Uh, in the early years who were credible, gravitated to him, and it gave him a lot of push and shove and sold a lot of books, but I think a lot of them now regret it. And so, um, anyway. uh, All right, very good. Joan from Royston, Georgia, wants to know, now that Apple has approved same-sex marriage, would you stop buying their products and recommend to your congregation not to purchase their products? Your advice is very important to me, she writes. I have an Apple computer right in front of me. I have an Apple iPhone in front of me. I have an Apple iPad. Uh, and, uh, and I bought the computer recently, even after they came out on that. So it's an issue of personal conscience. Uh, and again, if Christians are going to be consistent, they have to be consistent across the board. Uh, what if your bank loans money to Planned Parenthood? You know, there are major banks there in America that have given many loans to Planned Parenthood across the United States. Does that mean you pull your money out of the bank? Uh, Jesus refers to banks, and there are a lot of things. You know, what if the bank uh, loans money to a to build a new restaurant that is going to make people drunk? Do you pull your money out of that bank? What if, uh, in, in the thing with banks now is they're not typically just little individual family-run banks anymore. These are national chains that are linked. And so Jesus speaks of unrighteous mammon, and he speaks even in the parable of the talents. And a talent is not a skill, of course. It's a sum of money. It's a sum of silver. He said, you could have at least put my money in the bank and collected some interest on it. So God's not necessarily against banks. So it is an issue of personal conscience. So when trans, you know, when Target came out in favor of transgender bathrooms, I said, I'm not going to support Target anymore. I'm just not. I'm, I'm not. And I just got a, um, uh, an invitation or my wife and I did. And the person was registered at Target. And I'm now, well, my wife said, well, we'll go on, we'll go online and find out what they're going to, what it is they're looking for. And then we'll go on Amazon and we'll find it, but we're not going to buy it from Target because we're fundamentally opposed to that. And if you, in your conscience, choose not to be involved with Apple, then, you know, you do what God shows you do. It's kind of like, this election that we are facing, you know, people ask me all the time, who are you voting for? And I understand there are people who say, I just can't vote for Trump. And I completely understand that. And I can respect that. And then there are Christians who say, you know, I think we can slow the process down. And if he does what he says he's going to do, and he indeed replaces some Supreme Court justices with people who are reflective of a Judeo-Christian morality, then that will be to the gain of the church and to the body of Christ versus if Hillary, and we already know the kind of people that she wants to put on there, uh, you will see, you will see the fruit of that in local churches across America. Uh, You will see decisions that will have huge impact on you as a born again Christian. It won't, it won't impact liberal Christians We have no problem with a lot of these moral issues who are calling good evil and evil good, but will impact the biblicist who takes the word of God as authoritative. 
Uh, so some would say, look, I, you know, I, I want to vote for him because and, and then some would say, I can't do it. And someone would say, well, not to vote for Trump is to vote for a baby killer like Hillary. Yeah, it is. I suppose it is. It's to vote for Supreme Court justices who are going to reflect an entirely different morale. It is. Um, but you have to follow your conscience. And if, uh, if indeed that heartache, that persecution that comes upon the church purifies the church and creates a revival, maybe that's part of God's plan. Who knows? So you've got to do what God shows you to do. And when in doubt, cut it out. Whatever's not from faith is sin. So it is a personal applicational issue uh, that you're going to make. But if you go around and say, well, um, you know, I've pulled out of Apple and you should too. I could probably find 10 other companies that you support that has less than uh, even even some worse stances uh, than than Apple. So, you know, you got to live in the world, but not be a part of it. And it's walking that line. Can I add? Please. Yeah. yeah. My personal feel is whatever product is providing your ability to serve best is the one to use. And Apple has been superior for a long period of time. Now there are other companies that are coming up on on side them. And I wouldn't be surprised if in a few years I switch from Apple to maybe a Samsung or you know, something else. See, I, I have to follow Rick here because he's, <laughs> he's my IT guy. I don't know anything about computers. and But look, it's like the Internet. You know, the Internet, there's a lot of evil on the Internet. But we're using the Internet. You know, we had, a, we had a, a, you know, 100 people, some services, who are live streaming us on different continents across the world in different time zones. And a lot of people who are watching our 915 service and then they go to their 11 o'clock church service uh, because they're not getting any Bible input. And then all the replays, that's the Internet. We're using what could be used for evil for good. And we're, I, I use, you know, the Apple computer and uh, for good by the grace of God. Uh, but Rick's right. You know, we might have more choices. And, uh, but I'm a, I'm a techno idiot, so I have to follow him. So you'll give the account of the judgment seat of Christ, oh, brother. All right. Well, <laughs> I'm just um, playing with you. Got another listener right. from New York City, Danny, would like to know if you know who Perry Stone is. And if so, what do you think about what he teaches? Well, I, I, I don't know who he is, Perry Stone. No, doesn't ring a bell. But I suppose we could Google him and find out and, uh, later, and we'll come back to that question. All right. Aiden from Albany, Georgia, says, is it not biblically sound for a Christian Marine or a Christian police officer to kill or injure evil people in the line of duty? Relatedly, similar question regarding defending oneself or family with force, including deadly force, to defend your family, etc. Guess to put it another way, how do we as Christians reconcile the killing of our enemies with the love your enemy or turn the other cheek portions of scripture. All right, so let me uh let me turn to the uh the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first 5 books of the Bible and of course the 10 commandments are found in two critical places in Exodus chapter 20 and in Deuteronomy chapter 5. So here in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 13 it reads you shall not kill. Um in one translation and in another translation it says you shall not murder. So I think the latter is a better translation. When the King James was done in 1611, the word murder did not exist in the English language. So the way they reflected what God said here is you shall not kill. 
And there's a lot of words, of course, that find their meaning in context. And so you had some of the Amish and Seventh-day Adventists, and they would quote Exodus 20:13, the Sixth Commandment, you shall not kill, and therefore they are conscientious objectors, and uh, they will not serve, you know, in any kind of a combat setting. But again, I think it would be better translated today, you shall not murder. Now understand, uh, the Scripture interprets the Scripture. And so in Exodus 20, here in verse 13, Moses tells us not to kill. But if I turn over a page here to Exodus chapter 21 in verse 12, it tells me very specifically that uh, if you take another man's life, uh, you are to be put to death. That's not a contradiction. It's just understanding contextually here that there's a distinction between killing and murder. So one chapter in essence, uh, says you shall not kill or better, you shall not murder. And the next chapter tells you that if you murder someone, you should be put to death. So understand that all murder is killing, but not all killing is murder. King David, under God's direction, led a number of uh, victorious campaigns for God's people, Israel. And God gave some very specific instructions. So um, they would, in essence, uh, take the lives of evil people. And yet at the same time, he stayed home during one of those campaigns. And we studied this not long ago and he committed murder. He took the life of one of his soldiers and really more than Uriah because of the strategy that he had to kill Uriah. It ended up in the death of a number of Uriah's soldiers as well. So there's a difference is what, what I'm trying to say. With that said, many people would quote, you know, Matthew 5 and the Sermon on the Mount, you know, love your enemies. And didn't Jesus say love your enemies and to pray for those who persecute you? Yes, he did. So, uh, but understand that you cannot really love someone without hating. Love that doesn't hate. I mean, think about it. Love that doesn't hate is really a hypocritical kind of love. If a man loves what's right, he's going to hate what's wrong. And a person who loves people will hate murder. And God establishes a principle in the word of God that we hate the sin, but we love the sinner. And of course, uh, God does give specific instructions. You know, he speaks of personal revenge as being something that is unacceptable. Jesus spoke of turning the other cheek. Paul said it in these words in, in Romans 12, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. God doesn't say there's no revenge. God says in this verse that he will repay. And what instrument does God use to take his revenge out on? In the next chapter in Romans 13, he's going to tell us he does it through the government. And so if people take into their own hands the law, you have anarchy in a society. Uh, So... God gives the government to be his minister, to put down evil and to put up good. Well, we've run out of questions. I mean, we've run out of time, but maybe we'll pick that up next time and uh, we'll, we'll discuss it some more. I hope you have a good day as you walk with Christ and obey him. Sunday night, barbecue and picnic here at Community Bible Church. It's going to be an outstanding time, one of the leading Christian big band sounds in the United States. They've been on Fox and CNN.